Welcome to Time Passages, and here is another podcast with myself, Chris. And Steve. Good morning. Uh, We'll be talking uh, this morning about the German Revolution of 1918-1919, looking at its uh, impact on Germany and also the process of the actual revolution itself. So let's look first at what actually was the build-up to revolution in Germany. Steve, if you can take us to October 1918, what was sort of going on in the harbours and ports of northern Germany? Um, well, the German Navy been pretty much port-bound since um, the Battle of Jutland, but by the time we get to the 29th of October 1918, a serious unrest going on amongst the sailors, especially in the port of um, Wilhelmshaven. In many ways, this unrest that Steve is talking about stems from the high command uh, within the German fleet. Essentially, the German fleet had been bottled up in its harbours for pretty much most of the First World War, with a few exceptions like the Battle of uh, Jutland in 1916. And essentially, they were asked to do a last-ditch attempt to attack the British fleet. Now, naturally, if if you're asked to do that, uh, morale is going to be very low uh, on this suicide mission. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, the, the sailors of the Navy realised that the war was lost um, and they didn't really see the point in this. Um, it just seemed there's another ex- another excuse for the German military high command to try and retain some of their former military glory. Um, and as far as they were concerned, it would just lead to pointless slaughter and the loss of their own lives. It only takes one case study, really, like, uh, as you say, Wilhelmshaven, uh, to start the ball rolling. And then this kind of spreads to other uh, ports and then inland into towns and cities where it then affects the army, doesn't it? Yeah, that, that's true. Um, like I said, it was fairly obvious right across the board, both within the Navy and within the army, that um, the war was lost, even though that news hadn't really filtered through to uh, the German population back home. And I guess the next stage that we can look at is if we zip forward to the 6th of November, where we start to see numerous workers in soldiers' councils, very similar to what took place in Russia in uh, the the revolutions of 1917. We see the emergence of Soviet small bodies of people uh, working with the communist cause. Uh, And uh, these were in major cities like Berlin, Cologne and Stuttgart. Yeah, that's true. I think it it, it becomes clear um, that Max von Baden, who'd been um, installed as a chancellor as a, a way of trying to um, solve some of the issues that Germany was facing, it was clear that von Baden's um, or von Baden, sorry, his reforms had failed to impress mm, um, mm. The, the the German public. Um, you know, realization that the war had lost was lost, and there was no nothing to be gained by carrying on. A sense of sort of national shock from many um, German people who, up until this point, had been told that Germany was on the on the verge of victory, and also, um, you know, the change in socio-economic conditions at home as a result of the Royal Naval Blockade. All of these factors really led to this uh, this point in time. Yeah, and I guess we've kind of up to this point ignored the blockade. Um, it wasn't it was almost to the point that Britain was. Um, not allowing the ships to get through, that then has a knock-on impact with the, as you say, the social condition, uh, in certain cases, um, widespread uh, hunger, malnutrition, and obviously they never were invaded themselves, were they, Germany? So there was that idea, as we'll talk about in later podcasts, the idea of the stab-in-the-back myth, 
the idea that uh, they, they, they hadn't lost the war. It was the politicians and the Jews and the uh, corrupt officials within the government. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. I think they generally felt as though, you know, the soldiers and the sailors, they tried the hardest. They're the guys that are doing the fighting, the dying, and they ultimately have been let down. And going back to Prince Max von Baden, uh, you're quite right. By the end of the first week of November, it's quite clear that the October reforms that were brought in by first Ludendorff uh, are really failing to impress the people. So that's why we get things like in Bavaria, um, in the, the, the deposing of King Louis III and the election of the socialist leader Kurt Eisner, who then turns Bavaria into kind of a socialist republic. So... It's gone quite quickly, isn't it? The, the last days of October into early November. It's quite rapid, and it's changing the uh, structure of Germany quite significantly. Yeah, I, I'd agree. And, I, you know, I, one's got to feel some sympathy for, mm. um, for von Baden. You know, he's a moderate conservative. He wants to try and um, hold on to the monarchy. He wants to try and preserve Germany the best he can. Unfortunately, he's, you know, he's stuck with a situation where you've got a very delusional Kaiser Okay, he thinks he can just carry on yeah, yeah. Uh, regardless. Um, and that makes his position, uh, von Baden's position, almost impossible. So the next step in the revolution then is to move away from that constitutional monarchy that uh, Prince Max von Baden's trying to usher in uh, into what becomes President Ebert's first government on the 9th of November. Yeah, um, von Baden was um, extremely worried about the revolutionary situation um, in Berlin and other major German cities and as a result of discussions with the military um, and um, the Kaiser he announced the Kaiser's resignation at the same time time announcing a provisional left-wing coalition government um, which would um, take over the running of Germany under the auspices of uh, Friedrich Herbert. And I guess that's uh, the combination of the Social Democrat Party, what we would know as the SPD, and the Independent Socialist Democrat Party. So if you kind of look at your political timeline, it's kind of centre slightly to the left. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, the, S, uh, you know, the Social Democrat Party are the main sort of movers and shakers in this. Um, on the fringes of that, you've got the USPD. Um, which are more extreme uh, left aren't they yeah more radical um, they want radical social and economic change but they're far from united as, as a political party mm. they're, they're, they're very fractious and then also we've got we've got the Spartacus as well the, so the KPD isn't it on, yeah. the, on the very sorry that's the one I meant on the very extreme right yeah so um, overall um, with this coalition government which is put in place just as a stopgap until elections can be held. Um, this coalition government was far from united, so any suggestion that this was a, um, a revolutionary movement, um, I, I would take issue with. Like I said, it's not the same situation we had in um, Russia in 1917 by any stretch. Of the and I, I would totally agree with you that um, you know when we debate these points in the classroom, you know, was the German Revolution really revolutionary? Uh, I tend to disagree, and I think I look at two agreements that took place uh, within the first um, month in power uh, through Ebert and uh, the Chancellor Scheidemann. Um, for the first is the agreement, uh, the Ebert Groner Agreement. And the second one is the Steins-Ligen. Now, the Ebert-Groner agreement concerns the army, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, General Groner contacted Herbert. He's the one that makes the first move. Um, 
And in this agreement, the, uh, the Supreme Army Command agreed to support the new government and to use its troops to um, you know, maintain stability within Germany. Which it, was a big problem, wasn't it? Because um, you know you want to change, but yet you're keeping the army intact, aren't you? Absolutely, and you know the German army is part of the problem in the past. Um, but yeah, in return, Herbert promises to oppose the spread of extreme revolutionary socialism um, and to preserve the authority of the army and the army officer corps, which is essentially what the German army wants. Um, Again, it's linked to this um, stab in the back myth. It doesn't want to take the blame for taking Germany into war and, and promising victory when it was, you know, incapable of delivering on such promises. And as such, um, you know, we can't ignore the Abert-Grown Agreement because um, it kind of is used in the context uh, with the Spartacus Revolt, which we'll talk about in a moment, which happened in January the following year. So from the signing in 10th of November uh, 19. Um, 18 to the 5th of January 1919 we've got this situation where the government need the support of the army but in order to get that as you say Steve they need to make a compromise essentially yeah. that's what it is it's a compromise and therefore we don't get clear change absolutely um, and, and, and without this it's fair to say that the, um, the, you know, the national government wouldn't have survived so the second one that we're going to look at, as I aforementioned, is the Steins-Ligen Agreement. And this one isn't concerned with the army, but is concerned with industrialists. Hugo Steins, very powerful industrialist. Um, and essentially the compromise here, I say compromise, well, let, let, let me discuss it. For, so the Steins-Ligen Agreement is effectively um, that uh, the trade unions would ensure that their workers would not go on strike in order for the safety of the country and um, to ensure that uh, uh, production is going forward. In, in um, response to that, um, Hugo Steins promised that he would give a better working day, an eight-hour working day for the workers as, as sort of a, uh, an equation to not striking. Yeah, I'd agree. It's another sort of you know behind-the-scenes deal to try and... <sighs> Not preserve the status quo, but make sure that to make sure that Germany doesn't sort of unravel into complete chaos and revolution, mm. and sort of um, its recognition of German workers' rights, but at the same time, it's trying to preserve the um, the power of, of the industrialists to main, you know, to make sure that um, trade continues, to make sure that capitalism continues in Germany. And I guess historians kind of look at these two agreements and kind of see it as the first chip at the um, Weimar Republic under Ebert. So severely criticised over the years, particularly by the left wing, I would say, because it seems to be that he's compromising with the normal uh, structures of conservatism. The armies associated with conservatism, uh, the industrialists are concerned with uh, conservatism. So really, uh, to almost come full circle on this point that we're making here, uh, the army in many ways was not really reformed at all, was it? No. And um, could you argue it's really democracy being played out here at large? Um, I suppose you could. I mean, I, I would ultimately say that if I was arguing it from a left-wing point of view, that um, the revolution was sold out as a result of these two um, these two agreements. Yeah, yeah, I suppose, I suppose... Um, it kind of gave that edge, didn't it? That um, 
it sh- well, it showed that Abert was willing to do something in order to rescue the situation that you've had since the uh, the, the discontent in the ports like Wilhelmshaven from the, the tw- 29th of October. So I guess it's his way of showing that he's willing to come forward and actually do something about the situation. Yeah, I'd agree. But it also, you know, underlines the fact that I think Abert was a realist. You yeah, know, yeah, he, he yeah. understood what the situation was. Um, and he realised that the only way he was going to preserve... Um, the revolution, if you want to call it the revolution, was by, you know, getting into bed with the enemy, as it were, and, and talking with the army. Um, and the same could be said with the, the agreement with, between the unions and the industrialists. It's um, a, n- a necessary compromise, I would mm. say. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, actually. Yeah, a necessary compromise. So let's look at our uh, last aspect of the German Revolution. And this is the Spartacus Revolt. Uh, many of the students listening out there might have done this at GCSE, um, but it's also consistent with what we look at at A-levels. So the Spartans' Revolt takes place in January 1919, and it's concerned with the left, the far extreme left. Steve, do you just want to highlight what the Spartans' Revolt actually was? How did it take place? Um, well, like I said, the, the KDP, the German Communist Party, it split from the SDP um, during the war years um, and led by um, two individuals um, Liebenecht and uh, Luxembourg they staged um, what they hoped to be a a communist uprising in January 1919 um, where they seized power or they tried to seize power in in Berlin Um, what the revolution or the uprising actually shows is that whilst the Spartacus were probably very strong on policies, they were actually totally detached from the real political situation as it was in Germany at the time. Um, they'd no real strategy. Um, they just basically workers with rifles, weren't they? Absolutely, no real strategy. Um, the, the, you know, they're faced with a coalition government which was supported by by the army and probably the vast majority of the the German population. So, you know, a bit of a non-starter when you're faced with the German army plus 400,000 plus members of the um, the Freikorps. Which was the ex-soldiers that uh, were willing to basically be armed militia, weren't they? Absolutely. Um, You know, after seizing a few sort of key buildings in Berlin, um, the revolution was very quickly and very violently suppressed by, like I said, the army and the Freikorps. And I guess, as you will see through these series of podcasts, whenever the Weimar government is challenged, it always seems to be from one aspect of the political spectrum. You never get a united front, do you? So, obviously, we'll look at this in later podcasts, but the Munich Putsch of 1923, uh, done by the far-right Nazis, that was an isolated wing of the political spectrum. Here we've got the Spartacists. It's the other extreme. It's the left extreme. And once again, they're not siding with any other aspect of the political spectrum. So... Could you argue, really, that if they were united with another party or another wing of the political spectrum, maybe then the Weimar government would be challenged? Maybe, possibly, but I'm, you know, when I'm looking around, I'm thinking, who would they actually unite with? Um, yeah, true, true. And again, I, you know, I, I think it was a non-starter. Um, you could argue that Herbert had survived, but only just by putting his faith in or his trust in in the army uh, generals. Uh, but I believe that even if the army just stood on the sidelines, possibly, maybe, possibly, Herbert could have weathered the, mm. sp- the weathered the storm because the Spartacus were so disorganised. Yeah, and it's early days, isn't it? I mean, Herbert's just come into power. Very early um, days. You know, if 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 it had been 
further in and he had done more disastrous things within his time in power then then maybe they could have been a signal for discontent and people that were angry with the government but it's still early days people are willing to give Abert time and therefore yeah as you say you know they haven't got the power they haven't got the clout and they certainly don't have key organizers in Luxembourg and Liebknecht do they no. you eventually get bumped off a bridge yeah. dumped in the back of a car uh, riddled with bullets and then thrown off a bridge yeah I mean you know if you wanted to draw comparisons between you know the Soviet revolution of 1917 mm-hmm. and this revolution here in Russia you've got um, a long I'm saying a long period you've got the 1905 revolution the communists have got their act together in, in Russia more than they've got their act together in yeah, there's a more of a long-standing tradition uh, within Russia from pretty much the turn of the century. Um, here in Germany, it's slightly different. It seems to be more conservative. That's the tradition from 1900, not so much. And I think, as one question could be posed, you know, was the Weimar Republic doomed from the start? A lot of that is to do with this over-reliance on conservatism. People aren't welcoming when you get an uprising like this. Uh, which is a challenge to the status quo. Absolutely, I totally agree. So we have discussed quite a bit in today's podcast. Um, the German Revolution, we've kind of hinted upon, was it really revolutionary? Um, well, certainly with the uh, compromises made, the uh, Ebert-Groner Agreement and the steins Legen Agreement, uh, was it really revolutionary? And then we've touched upon at the end there, the Spartacist uprising. So hopefully that's uh, been of help today. Thank you for listening. Thank you.